Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we're now on our fifth year, but it's true. And it's only because of you, the listeners. And if you'd like to see us stick around for another five years, there are a few simple things that you can do that would really, really help us out. And I would be endlessly appreciative. Number one, share our episodes with your friends. If you get something out of these episodes, I'm sure they will too. So please share us with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me and our guests too. My Instagram is at audio, And let me just let you know that we love seeing ourselves tagged in these posts. Who knows? We might even respond. And number three, leave us reviews and five stars, please, anywhere you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, I want to thank you all for the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never ever charge you for this podcast, and I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way possible. All I ask in return is a share, post, and a tag. Now let's get on with it. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the URM Podcast. My guest today is uh, S.J. Jones, who is a South African producer living in uh, California. She's got a very interesting story because she got into a band like 10, 15 years ago that got really, really big in South Africa, as you'll hear, like to the level of flying around on private jets. And then went from there and came to the U.S. and started from ground zero and built up this production career that led to her now working with people like Head from Corn. Jason Rauch from Breaking Benjamin, Alien Out Farm, and all kinds of other people. She's a very, very interesting person and an example of really what you can pull off if you just put your head down, refine your skills to the utmost degree, and really, really go for it. It's always inspiring to me to talk to people who pull off the seemingly impossible. So without further ado, I give you S.J. Jones. So S.J. Jones, welcome to the URM podcast. Thank you. I'm so stoked. I appreciate you being here, especially considering the fucking jet lag you must be feeling right now. It's actually crazy because New Zealand is only three hours ahead in time, but a, a full day. But for some reason, I am like absolutely broken. Could have been the excessive alcohol in New Zealand, but otherwise, you know, getting old is no fun. What were you doing in New Zealand? You said it was some sort of a tour? Yeah, so um, I'm a part of a, like a DJ duo, as well as a million other things that I do. And so we were brought over by uh, some promoters doing Waitangi Day, which is the Marae, like the tribal people doing a kind of a get together. And it was super cool. It was like 5,000 family and kids and it, it was a good it was a good vibe and then we got to uh, go up north and surf a little bit and hang out on the beach it's a beautiful beautiful spot that's quite the journey 
to go play some shows. It sure was. And then I I threw in a, a session with uh, New Zealand's biggest selling hip hop pop artist up there too. So, you know, never sitting still. Crazy times. Do they have like a serious music scene there? They actually do. I mean, New Zealand's so tiny. I related a lot to how South Africa was. You know, artists become such big fish in such little ponds, you know, and then when you step outside of your own country, it's like, oh, holy crap, you know, how are we even doing this? But they have a really cool, cool scene over there. There seems to be uh, a lot of music support and people really like rock. They love hip hop. You know, I, I guess it's the same everywhere, really. What you were just saying about the big fish in a small market reminds me of something that a classification I always make when uh, someone is telling me that a metal band is big or something. I always need to know if it's big for metal or actually big. Right. Because it's two completely different things. It really is. I think it goes th- goes for every genre. Yeah. I know from traveling and just from going all over. It blows my mind how many artists there are in the world that have massive careers or really great careers that people here in the U.S. have never even heard of and will never hear of Yep, that are super active, like super accomplished, cool artists. It's really, really interesting. Like there's a, there's this German metalcore band called Heaven Shall Burn that, <laughs> yes. okay, so they're this metalcore band and I'm not, I don't listen to metalcore, but uh, I know who the big bands are in that genre. And there's the bands that are big here and everybody knows them, but then they go there and then they open for Heaven Shall Burn. Heaven Shall Burn is bigger than all the big American metalcore bands over there. However, nobody here has even heard of them. And this band has been around for well over a decade. Wow. They're a big fucking band. So I don't know what it is. I feel like Germany, kind of that whole Eastern Bloc, like Russia, Georgia, all those places, like they just have this crazy metal and rock scene, which like America just doesn't seem to cater to that for some reason. I think we're so forced fed popular culture that we kind of, even if we do love music of a certain genre, it's sort of what's put in our face is less of, of that. Whereas like these other countries are just like the response to, I mean, bands always say, and I'm sure that, that people have spoken to you about this a lot, like when they go on tour to Europe or to Japan or whatever, they're like, man, the response that we get over there is so crazy. Whereas America, which is like 10 times bigger than any of those countries, is just like people are suffering on tour. It's crazy. It blows my mind. I have a few theories on why that is. The first one is I think, size of the U.S. So I think if you go to certain parts of the U.S., it's just as cool as any of those markets like Japan or Germany. But you can basically divide the U.S. into like five different touring markets, something like that. Now I'm interested. I don't know if this is actually true or not. So I'm. this is just how it works in my head. I look at the U.S. as multiple touring markets. So in my head, it's always like they're, you know, Southeast, then that Texas area, then the West Coast of Arizona, kind of nothing in the middle, and then the the Northeast. (laughs) Right. Uh, By nothing in the middle, I don't actually mean nothing in the middle because there's a lot going on. That's where like all the great bands come from. 
Like yeah. in, in the middle where there's nothing. Everyone's well, yes, just like Well, yes, because there's nothing going on. <laughs> yeah, so, but the, the thing is, so I think people, when they talk about touring in the U.S. being hard, they're thinking about all these different regions as part of one big thing, as opposed to looking at the, like the Southeast with the, as one touring market, the Northeast as another touring market. And I think if you look at it like that and compare individual touring markets in the U.S. to foreign countries like Japan, I think it's uh, there's a, more grounds for comparison there. Yeah, totally. Man, we I had the, the craziest... I played in a band in, in South Africa for, for a couple of years and we had several number ones over there and then we decided, well, you know, we've kind of hit the roof in terms of sales and, and kind of the rock scene. There's a very small rock scene in South Africa and we kind of, you know, hit the roof there. And so we're like, okay, well, let's spend every cent we've ever made and, and get a bus and tour America for three months. I mean, we did 39 of the states in three months, like me and five boys in, in a Ford E350. It was the gnarliest experience I've ever had in my entire so, life. Uh, we got to get terms just because you're saying bus, but an E350 is a van. So is the terminology different? I think America is the only place in the world that has these like giant ass cars, you know, and trucks and vans and buses. When I say bus, I mean a van, you know, it was okay. a, a E350 was was a van, but it was kind of like one of those, you know, a, a disa- like a, a school bus. But a really small, a small bus. <laughs> what do you yeah. guys call those things? I don't know. It looked, it looked like that. And uh, a friend of ours who was living in Atlanta at the time, like pulled out the seats in the back and like put a uh, this little like faux bed thing in the back. And we had a, a little fridge in. And when we arrived in Atlanta, which was our first stop, and it was like my first time in the states, just so rad. Like we opened the fridge and there was like twenty four steel reserve. In the fridge, you know, really, really classy. So when you say that you kind of got to what you would consider to be the ceiling of the South African market with four number ones, I guess that means if people listened to rock, they knew who you guys were. Basically, yeah, absolutely, so it like- absolutely. I mean, Stealing Love Jones, which was the name of the band, it was actually called Love Jones. And then uh, when we came over to the states, there was another band called Love Jones that like uh, tried to sue us for the name or something. And so we were like, well, fine, we'll just call it Stealing Love Jones. I mean, you know, we'd we'd sold. I mean, I, I can't even quantify what it was, but it, it's sort of the. There's definitely a great rock scene in South Africa, but it's very divided. You get the the Afrikaans scene, which is kind of the more the Dutch sounding uh, rock scene, and then you get like, I mean, for lack of better terminology, kind of the white rock scene, you know. And then you get Kwaito, which is kind of like the the hip hop, and that's such a massive scene over there that it's kind of hard to sustain. But there's definitely a living to be made from it. And then I, I guess I was just like, there's no way that uh, I wasn't born to to figure out something in the United States. And, and uh, that's kind of what we decided to do. So it just wasn't good enough for you. I mean, it, it was the best platform from which to, to launch myself. You know, I think... No, I, I get it. But like, you know, what's interesting to me is always when someone says this isn't enough for me. It's just interesting to me because... This is something that 
I I used to wonder why I would piss off some people around me because I'd always hear, you should be happy with what you've got. Lots of people would kill to be in the position you're in in lots of different scenarios over Absolutely. the years. And I'd be thinking, no, I'm not even close to where I want to be. So I imagine mm-hmm. there would be lots of people in the South African scene who would have been perfectly happy with the level you guys got to. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess so. And I guess it's true. Just, you know, I just wanted more. Um, and I don't think it was like a super narcissistic fame thing. It was just, I, I wanted to see what else was possible, you know, I, which is really cool. And South Africa really does have as incredible as the music scene and as incredible as it is over there, it definitely is limited. And so being able to to use that as a platform. Honestly, I feel like if I was born in the United States that I would never, ever have the success that I do now. And I know that's a crazy thing to say, but I feel like having the opportunity of being, once again, such a big fish in such a small pond kind of helped open doors for me in the United States, which I don't think would have happened if I was just an, an another person born in the United States, you know, but I could be totally wrong, but that's that's kind of how it feels. So I feel really, really lucky and really blessed to have had everything that that's growing up in South Africa for the 27 years I was there gave me. I mean, and also the thing that I think is definitely true is that anybody who's experienced that kind of success, whether or not it's like, you know, in a major market or not, is going to be taken seriously right off the bat by other people. So I think that it definitely, it gives you credibility uh, from which you can then move on from. And I always actually tell producers that if they're having trouble getting clients and, you know, they've done everything, you know, they've gotten pretty good. They have a studio, they've tried internships, like everything. And it's just not growing. Maybe they need to try to get in a band or something. Right. Uh, Something where their own credibility, their own name can get out, get out there and they can start making relationships. Totally. It's such a catch-22 situation because, I mean, absolutely have being able to say that I toured with Fall Out Boy, Jimmy World, see the Evanescence, you know, that's such a huge asset to your resume. And there really is a catch-22 situation because there's so many incredibly talented producers and engineers out there and nobody gives you freaking time of day, you know? And it's like, well, how am I not going to get there if you don't give me the chance or the opportunity, then people keep going back to the same producers and the, the same engineers over and over again. You know, I love giving giving people chances and opportunities because I feel like I was given so many. And that's something really important for us as people that have all of these great doors open to us, that we open the doors to future producers, engineers, bands, you know, at least give people a chance. I completely, completely agree with you. So how was it touring the U.S.? You, you didn't tell me, was it? I, I normally find that people who tour the U.S. for the first time, unless they're really, really big here, find it to be pretty demoralizing. 
It was so daunting, man. It was like, I mean, we, we were kids with stars in our eyes, you know, and, and I think delusions of grandeur, you know, I've learned so much in these past 10 years of being in the States. Um, it, it was just so big, you know, the uh, America, the Americas, it's just, it's so massive where, you know, in South Africa, we had a crew, we were, we were, were flying in private planes, we didn't have to do anything, you know, we'd got to that point where kind of the lugging uh, your own shit around had stopped, you know, we got here to the States again, and it was like, it was like being in a band from day one again, which I think was really tough mentally for all of us, because we'd worked so hard, and we were like, oh, wow, you know, we're freaking rock stars, and then now we're back again, offloading, like drum kits, bass amps, guitar amps, every, setting everything up, playing the show to one person, tearing everything down, putting it back in the trailer and driving 15 hours to the next show for one person. You know, so it was it was the most humbling, insane experience, you know. And I think if I could do it all over again, I would. I would definitely do it differently, even though I don't exactly know how we'd do it differently because we paid a lot of money to to try and have a, a career over here. And America is, uh, you know, the rand, which is the South African money, to the dollar is almost the same as the peso. You know, it's, it's almost 20 to 1, it's like 16 to 1. So it's like, you know, $50,000 is like half a million rand. You know, it's it was just that, and that's how much we spent on on the tour, just just being able to live, and basically, uh, basically, just could have drawn fifty thousand dollars and set it on fire. <laughs> that's kind of what I equate the tour to. But it was a great experience, and and I I wouldn't be here without it. You know, it was we actually ended the tour early because. I mean, everybody was just partying too hard. Everyone was exhausted. Everyone missed wives. You know, it was just, it, it ended up just being an absolute shit show. And luckily, 10 years down the line, we are all friends now and we we love each other and we're successful, everybody. But that's not how we parted as a band. It was just like, we got to LAX and it was like, you can go fuck yourself and I never want to see you ever again. Like that's kind of, that was kind of how the the tour and the band kind of split up and everyone went back to South Africa. I sold everything up and came back to the States. I was just like, this is not it. You know, this is not it for me. And then I discovered. So it didn't chew you up and spit you out. Well, I mean, Basically. I definitely hit like a super low time. I just got home and I, I think I have a really bad memory and I, I blame it to my excessive partying when I was a kid. But I'm pretty sure that that I was in bed for about three months, you know, just kind of like, oh, this is my life is over. Like, Well, I mean, the, one of the good sides of having a bad memory is that you won't remember how long and shitty the tour was. Seriously. I mean, there's there's like, I remember the beginning and I remember the end. Like the whole middle part, I remember nothing. I do do remember this this one one crazy, I can't remember where it was, but it was like something called like Little Red Bar or something. And we ended up getting snowed in. And so we couldn't play the show and so we ended up going back to the manager's house who lived in he lived in this crazy like it was like this haunted house it was just had weird rooms everywhere and we ended up like taking shitloads of mushrooms that night and there was like 
a teddy bear in the room, this giant-sized teddy bear that was speaking to me the entire night. And I remember being, like, the next morning going, holy crap, like, we got to get out of here, guys. This is the craziest situation ever. But one of many bizarre tour stories. What was the teddy bear saying? Man. <laughs> Who knows? I can't even remember. All I remember was that its head was turning around. Do you remember the dinosaurs? You know, not the mama. Do you remember that song, that uh, that kids? No. <laughs> it was, da, da, no, da, I don't da, know da. what you're talking the, the, about. The, but, uh, the dinosaurs were freaking amazing, but there was this baby dinosaur and its head used to turn around. Is that a South around. African show? No, it wasn't. It's an American show. And the baby dinosaur, when he got sick, like his whole head turned around and he was like, not the mama. It was, anyway, that was kind of the situation. <laughs> Freaking creepy. Yeah, sounds like it. You know, I've been on those hell tours before. We were on a few of them. And like, I remember one in particular in 2009 that lasted for about three months. It was our mistake for accepting it. We had two options. We had a bigger tour that was shorter, but less money. And we got offered this smaller tour that was like 90 days long through a summer. That was more money. And our management, I knew better. I fucking knew better. But our management, like I take responsibility for accepting it, but we did get kind of strong-armed into it. And uh, on that tour, we were taking bets to see which bands would break up. Oh my gosh. There were six bands that set out on it and only two bands were left standing. No way. Um, at the end. And I just, I remember those kinds of tours as like the ones where, you know, you're driving 16 hours to play for two people or even 50 people. It's not worth it. Night after night for months, super brutal conditions. And uh, I know a lot of people who, I guess they they faced whether or not they really wanted to do it anymore. And most people said no. As a matter of fact, around that time, I also got honest with myself about not wanting to do the band thing anymore. I just, I came to the conclusion that my original ideas were were right for me. I think you got to be honest about your goals. I always said that I only wanted to do something huge. If it's not slip, not sized, I don't want to do it. And, um, Damn. and then Pressure. I kind of, yeah, well, I kind of, you know, I kind of was, stopped saying that because people will get weird about it and it sounds super unrealistic. But then after being on those hell tours, it's just like, you know, this is not what I want to do. Like, I want to do this if it's fucking huge. If not, I want to find something else because I'm not going to feel right until I'm doing something that's making a significant impact. Like, I'm not wired to do small things. And But I think a lot of people would go on those tours and just be like, I'm out completely. Like, this is over. Like, fuck this. Done. So I, I just think it's interesting hearing your story. You're in a big band, flying around in planes. You think you're going to come to the U.S. and continue that, but you get the brutal reality check of what it's like to tour in the U.S. when people don't know who you are, which is basically like being a local band. Like, you're basically, for all intents and purposes, I mean, you were the furthest thing from a local band in the U.S., obviously, but it's like the same thing. If you're playing for one person and nobody cares and 
extremely demoralizing. I think that most people who would have experienced that would have just, that would have been it forever. It's interesting to me that you took that as sign that like uh, you weren't done yet and uh, used it to catapult to the next step. I think that says a lot. South Africans in general are pretty resilient. There's definitely something about the work ethic of people that I've grown up with that I that is different from a lot of places that I've experienced around the world. You know, I, I think something that's really important to me is paying your dues. And I have so much more respect and more joy when I work with people that have paid their dues. You know, it's like, I, it just feels better to me. You know, there, there's there's a story to be told. There's a little bit more grit in that. You know, there's nothing worse to me than like American Idol or something like that where somebody was a dentist yesterday and today they're the biggest fucking artist in the world. Like that just makes me so mad. And, and yes, I'm excited that things evolve and I'm I'm excited for these opportunities because it creates opportunities for songwriters and producers like us to be able to actually make some some good cash. But it's like, man, that really irks me. I'm just like, oh. It puts some really fucked up ideas in people's heads about what it means to have a career in this. But it's not just in music. Like when Shark Tank became a successful TV show. Uh, the same thing happened with entrepreneurship where people thought that you just get an idea right. for like this iPhone case that like cooks for you and then Mark Cuban's going <laughs> to buy it. And totally. I remember being in line somewhere. This was a few years ago when Shark Tank was really, really big and uh, popular. I mean, it still is, but like when it first like got really big, someone was talking about some business idea he had and uh, his friend was giving him advice on how to how to get that that idea to the next level. And the business plan was get on Shark Tank, which is basically the equivalent of Crazy. I have a dream for music, American Idol. That's the path. That's such a fucked up notion of how things work. It's the worst. First of all, it's completely unrealistic. Right. Most of the people who even get those deals on whether they win American Idol or they get a Shark Tank deal, the majority of them fail because uh, it's not based on anything. But beyond that, what you're not seeing on TV is the 20,000 people who got rejected. Right. That part isn't really made a big deal of. So you're seeing like 10 people that are finalists and then one person who's like living this dream, but you're not actually, the public's not really understanding just how much of a lottery win that is and how just stupidly unrealistic and bullshit the idea of winning that is. I feel like it also changes people's work ethic, you know? And yeah. I'm a believer in, in in hard work gets you where you, you need to be. You know, you want to be a great musician? You freaking better be in your room eight hours a day practicing. You know, you want to be a great band? You guys got to be up there practicing three to four times a week, you know? It's just... I, I feel like there's a, a pattern that I'm seeing in in younger kids, you know, and, and I don't think I'm old by any means, but it's just in people that are younger that there's this instant gratification thing that it's like people are, are very entitled and, and, you know, I don't like it. I, I believe that music is, and it's a gift 
And this is something that, you know, that you earn. I really do. It's like having the privilege to stand up in front of people and and play and have people listen to what you have to say and, and love your music. Like that's a responsibility and a privilege. I completely agree. It's so crazy. Like people's work ethic is just like, oh well, you know, I'm I'm a rich kid and 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 you know, I I was in rehab for seven times already and I've never actually had a job in my life. But you guys should listen to my awful life story. I'm just like, oh my god, where was the disconnect in life? You know, God, I do sound old, but anyway. Well, the thing is, I will say that. Well, I've got two ideas on what you're saying. First is that I think. At least as far back as I can remember, people were always lazy. So I remember in the 90s trying to put bands together and being so fucking frustrated because nobody had work ethic. Mm-hmm. And I had a dream of being in a band where everybody practiced as much as I did, but I was not finding it. And it was really, really bothering me. And I remember that from the 90s. So I don't think... I don't think that new, the new generation has a monopoly on it, but I will say this. I think that with every technological advancement, there's obviously going to be pros and cons, no matter what, always pros and cons. There's so many pros to this uh, technological revolution, but I think one of the cons is that if you were born to where the internet was already big, so like say 2000 and on or something, like if you don't know what the world was like before that, so you're just born into this world we're in now, uh, I think that it could fuck you up a little bit because you're so used to things being instant. I can see how it could fuck up your expectations. However, on the other hand, I will say that kids that I've met who uh, from that younger generation are fucking smart because of the internet, their ability to learn and just the volume of shit that they learn and uh, the speed at which they learn. And it's crazy. Can I tell you the craziest experience that I've had? I, I work with a lot of younger artists and, and Disney Disney artists. And the craziest thing is like when I'm sitting in a session and I'm engineering vocals, I keep having to look at my vocal chain and going, is there auto-tune on the vocals? Because it, it's so insane. Like these kids, their, their vocals are so insane and pitch perfect. Yep. The way that the vocals change from notes, it almost sounds like it's got that auto-tune slip on it, you know? And I'm always just like, whoa, like have I got uh, auto-tune in the chain here somewhere where it shouldn't be? That's a pretty cool, pretty cool thing. I mean, humans are humans are pretty spectacular and brilliant things. I've noticed that too with vocalists. It's It also threw me for a loop the first time I noticed it. It happened with drummers as well. I remember, I believe that this drummer named Alex Rudinger, who um, is... A fucking god, uh, and he's younger than us, about ten years. Um, and so I started working with him when he was like nineteen or something, and he was ridiculous on the drums, ridiculous, and a lot more advanced than people from my generation. Mm-hmm. And I believe that what he told me was when he heard these records that we know we're all edited and triggered and all this stuff. Yep. He didn't know that because he was a kid. He thought that that's what they were actually playing. Wow. I mean, some of them were actually playing it, but he didn't know that it was like corrected or he didn't know that like 
samples were used on the kick to even out the velocities. He thought that that's kick drums were have to be that velocity played. Wow! And so, if that's what he thought, that's what he went for. <laughs> And he became basically a superhuman drummer. It's insane. Yeah, because he grew up hearing these drums and thinking that they were, that's just how drummers play. Wow. Now it is how drummers play. Totally. That's not how drummers used to play. I'm just noticing that all over the place. And so I actually have a lot of hope for the next generation. As long as they don't succumb to the the cons of living in this age, like as long as they don't get too wrapped up binging things or uh, expecting too much instant gratification, I think that they'll be, they'll be all right. I hope. <laughs> It'll be all good. Everything, com- everything comes back around, right? That's what do they say? 20 years, everything comes back, goes around in 20s or something. So right now we're about to get the early 2000s back again, which is my favorite time in music. The post-grunge, new metal, that's my jam. So it's so, and I am, I'm hearing guitars on radio again, which is super exciting. Because I feel like people, it's just everything's being programmed and the human element is, has been dissolved from pop radio, you know. And now that that uh, it's kind of climbing back up the charts and I can hear some live drums and there's, there's guitars back in there and I'm hopeful. Are you finding studio clients of yours are starting to lean back towards uh, real instruments? I feel like there's still a big hybrid, you know, because sonically, just how music sounds now, there's it's it just so perfect and corrected and and big, you know. Whereas you, if you listen to stuff um, from the seventies, eighties, nineties, you know, there's there's a big sonic difference. So I think people are still wanting that hybrid mix, you know, where it's like, hey, can we can we get this on it, but can we layer it with a synth or something just to fatten it up? There's definitely a, a nice shift happening. Whereas before, I mean a lot of the for the for the past couple of years, I've been working predominantly with kind of more pop artists. And it's everything's everything's really just about beat making. We're coming back around now um, my management team has me where I really want to be, you know, with rock and metal artists, and and it's kind of cool to be be sitting back in in the studio and and setting up mics and and tracking drums and um, and obviously, you know, when it comes to mix, that that we do add samples in and we're layering stuff because you know that it just things sound sexier that way. Maybe is that a weird word to say? Things sound no. sexier. No, it's true. <laughs> But it is cool, you know, because I grew up in the the church and I kind of learned everything from the church, like playing in, in the worship team and then kind of getting behind like the Alan Heath Z16FX, you know, kind of little fader board, you know. So it's kind of everything's everything's coming back to where I started, which which I'm excited about and why, like finding URM Academy, like, wow, what a joy. You guys are just to get online and, and, and watch through kind of the mix sessions and and you know, I've I've had the privilege of of sitting over the shoulders of producers and engineers that are massive. So I've I've learned a lot, but there's there's lots of secrets that that I've missed out on that that you guys are definitely uh, helping me with. So I appreciate it. The thing that I think we're doing is uh, getting on a record, like historical record, of the techniques of all these uh, great people in yep. this genre. 
because other genres have that. Um, you can go to a recording school and all these best practices mm-hmm. from all these other genres that are like normal people genres, you can go and you can learn them. They've been documented, but rock and metal uh, never was taken seriously in that capacity. I mean, right. some of the techniques definitely overlap, you know, and engineering is engineering, but the specifics of these genres just were never taken seriously. There was nowhere to really find that stuff, which bothered me to no end. So let's go back to talking about you coming back after after that disaster tour, because I'm, I'm curious about how you ended up coming back and how that ended up turning into the career you've got now. Because like we said before, like that could have been uh, the end point, but it wasn't. How did you end up coming back? I was hanging out with Sean from from Seether for a little while and, and he was living in Santa Monica and I was like, man, I just want to come back and do great things. And he was like, SJ, well, I think that you should move to San Diego first because LA will suck you in and spit you out. You know, he's like, which is true. Like LA is a gnarly, gnarly place. It really is. It's like, if you don't don't have a little bit of like backbone or a little bit of whatever you need to have. It's like you you will leave there a broken person. So I love I love him for for that piece of advice. You know, I moved to San Diego. There's a great community of South Africans there. So I kind of I had a little bit of a, a support base. And I basically just started like gigging again from as if I was day one. I was just I was playing at bars like five nights a week. Uh, for 50 bucks a night kind of thing, you know, just kind of having to do a hard reset on my life. Um, and then I met somebody that was in the... Wait, so was that uh, psychologically tough or were you cool with it? Um, I think I just, I needed to do it. You know, it's like, I felt like, okay, cool. I've been, America beat me down. And now I'm going to come back and, you know, I need to I need to keep having some kind of an income because the money that I have saved is not going to last me uh, very long. So it was like, okay, cool, I'm going to do exactly what I know what to do. Let's start from my small little town. So I literally beat down the door of every single bar and I was like, you guys need to hire me. This is my resume. Uh, I will do originals and covers. And I was doing like three hour sets, you know, 50 bucks every night. And like now if I think about it, I'm like, holy crap, like I couldn't even play one cover song. So once again, you know, kind of just just building up that resilience and and, and just being really good at, at your craft, you know, being able to to rock out on an acoustic guitar in front of like strangers at a bar every night, you know, being able to take requests. You know, and these these are not things that that I ever wanted to do in life, but it was just kind of what I felt that I needed to do and and I needed a job and I've never done anything else in my life but music. So I had to figure something out to to be able to get from A to B in in the states. When you came back, what was the goal? Like, what did you want it to build towards? I have absolutely no idea. It was just I just knew that I did not want to be in South Africa. That I don't believe that I was born to to just kind of hit that cap. Like that's sort of where I was at. And whether it be delusions of grandeur or whether it just be like stubbornness, I was just like, we, I need to push through and make something happen. So eventually this person that's a, a songwriter and she's actually a, a really big producer as well, Jennifer DeSolvio, she taught me 
everything I know. And she saw me playing at a bar one night and was like, have you ever considered being a songwriter? And I'm like, what do you mean? I am a songwriter. How rude, you know, like totally my ego bruised. And she's like, no, I mean, like writing music for other artists. And I was just like, my mind was blown. I was like, what do you what do you mean writing music for other artists? Like, don't artists write their own music? Your cables were crossed. I'm just like, whoa. You know, I had no clue until like 10 years ago that that the position as a songwriter even existed, you know, that, I mean, I understood what a producer was. I understood what an engineer was. And in South Africa, I'd been, like, before I'd kind of got into the the band thing, I was interning at a studio as, like, a second engineer, like, straight out of school, you know. So I definitely, I understood all of that stuff. I just had no clue that there was a, a job title as songwriter, you know, or top liner. And for those of you that that I don't know what the term top lining is. It's basically the melody and the lyric. Yeah, I didn't didn't know what that was until about seven years ago. Yeah, Uh, yeah. I didn't know that that was a job. Yeah, it's insane. So I was just like, okay, this is cool. Um, So Jen basically just like took me under her wing. Wait, wait, wait. so she just saw you in a bar and that's crazy, actually. Well, I, I I feel like I've had these wonderful moments where where maybe they what is the word that they they confirm or affirm in me that that there's there's something greater than than just me you know because like the same thing happened with my band in South Africa like this guy saw my band playing at a bar and he came up to me afterwards and he was like I want to fund your first record like just straight up no strings attached like all i want is is uh when the record's done please put an album on my desk that was it you know like literally wrote me a check right there like no sex no blowjobs just like straight up just boom here's here's like twenty thousand dollars his name wasn't Hardy. (laughs) no fuck no awesome it was it was insane you know and that's that's why i really i have such i have such wonderful hope in in humans and and why I, i really believe in just just giving and you know the thing about your story that happening multiple times I do realize that it is crazy that that's happened, but it wouldn't have happened if you weren't putting yourself out there. Agreed. I mean, like, I feel you and I are, are cut from the same cloth. You know, we, we are hustlers and man, still, I mean, I'm I'm 36 years old now and it's like, it never stops. You know, it's, I feel like in order to, to really get where you want to be in life and, you, you know, now that I'm choosing jobs that I love more, that, that pay a fraction of, you know, kind of big selling artists... It's kind of you have to keep doing many things in order to do what you love. That's actually an interesting point. And I think a lot of people aren't aware of this, but a lot of times when you're first starting to get opportunities along the lines of what you're looking for, you have to make financial sacrifices to make them mm-hmm. happen. Eventually, that's no longer the case. Right. But oftentimes when you're first starting to get like the attention of of, uh, you know, a level above where you've been operating or several levels above, they're not just going to offer big money. They, you got to prove yourself. And so you're going to get offered what they feel like paying. And I think the people who understand that and kick ass regardless are the ones who end up ascending to 
doing really, really well. Yeah. But I, I know I know a lot of people who have felt like they're too good to make that sacrifice, which is well, it's, suicidal. It's either either you or somebody else is gonna do it. You know, yes, exactly. So, so I, I mean, that's every single day I'm still in positions where, and the reason why I have so many other kind of fingers in, in pies, if, if that's the, <laughs> the right <laughs> thing to say, but it, it's, it's <laughs> yeah, it's, um, you know, it's the, the opportunities that I'm given nine times out of 10 are not paid. But I want so badly to work with this artist or to have my name attached to them that I'm willing to do it, you know. And it's kind of the reward that comes from that. And uh, I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, I I really think that that's an important, important thing to say. Just, Just go for what you love to do, you know, and then go and find another job, you know, just to to pay the bills and then get back in there and build that resume. You know, even though I'm still doing it now, 20 years later, if I didn't do it, I wouldn't get into the room with the Cone guys. If I didn't do it, I wouldn't be in the room with Crazy Town and Alien Ant Farm. You know, it's it's kind of they open doors. And then once you have those relationships, like those guys will stand by me. They'll be like the the just the way that I've. I've heard other people say that they've spoken about me as an engineer and producer. You know, those words are more valuable to me as a producer and engineer than than $5,000 for a song. I was about to say, that's your payment right there right. in terms of future work. Absolutely. One of the things that keeps coming up over and over and over and over on this podcast, and I know it from my own life, but it's just something that I like to harp on because uh, so many producers that I know that are coming up wonder where work comes from or if they should buy advertising or do all this stuff. And in reality, everyone I know who's done all right, it happened through word of mouth. That's how it works. Mm-hmm. That's that's always how it works. That's not the exception. That is the rule is word of mouth is what does it. And so getting people like members of corn to speak highly of of your work that is currency mm-hmm. basically that for and so relationship is everything you know 10 years down the line uh you know when I was in San Diego I was hanging out with uh, the POD guys you know and Wav and I have have kept a friendship going and he was he was the one kind of like two years ago that was like introduced me to my new management Renee Martin at AAM and Renee was the one that I was at NRG meeting with him and and the Grey Days guys just happened to be there which is the project that Chester was working on just before he passed you know so all of these things like the synchronicity of it all, it's like these relationships that I've invested in ten years ago are now paying off, like now. You know, so it's it really is important how you treat people, how you present yourself as a brand. You know, as a producer and an engineer and a human, you know, this is your own brand and you are your own entity. You know, so how people see you is really, really important to your business plan for the future. <laughs> It's kind of everything. So sorry to rewind this, but I wanted to hear more of the story, but we kind of went off on a really awesome tangent. So she comes up to you at a bar and uh, is like, have you considered songwriting? And you're like, what the fuck is that? But were you intrigued? 
Oh, absolutely. I was just like, cool, that'll be great. And I was still living in San Diego at the time. So, and she was living in, in LA. So she said, come on up. You can sleep on my couch. You know, we'll start. She obviously saw something in me that she could sign. She must have, she must have liked your originals or something. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that was it. You know, I, I think there's potential. You know, when you see somebody with talent and you at a stage where you can start signing people, you know, I think it was like, okay, cool, I'm going to sign her as a songwriter to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's, that's basically exactly how it, it went down. And for the next kind of two years, she literally taught me everything I know from how to use logic, um, how to kind of start crafting melodies, you know, so it, it really was incredible. It's invaluable education that um, I'm very grateful to to Jen. I mean, we've, we've kind of gone our separate ways and we're not close anymore, but what she's doing is just She's still slaying out there, you know, and and she's on the the pop side of stuff and I'm kind of on the the rock and metal side. But but what I was taught in terms of being how to conduct a studio session, you know, how to be with the artist, how to approach writing a song, how to approach instrumentation, you know, every single one of these things is something that that I was taught by her. And then obviously being in the room with massive producers and artists for the past eight years has has been an education in itself. But I mean it all it all started there. Insane. Really, there's nothing that can replace having the right mentor. Yeah, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. So you did you immediately just move to her couch like two days later? <laughs> yeah, I didn't have anything going on. I was just couch surfing in San Diego, and I, I'm sort of that person, you know. I really, I still am. Is that I don't really go into anything with a plan. I'm much better uh, flying by the seat of my pants. You know, I'm, I'm a really good under pressure person. Um, and when I have to plan something out, it's, I, I don't know, it just, that's just my personality type, I guess. So um, I'm fairly free spirited and, you know, just, I was like, cool, if you'll have me, like, let's go, you know? Fuck so yeah. so it really did go down like that. And, and just, she opened the doors up for me to get my first publishing deal. Uh, I signed a deal with uh, Zach Katz and J.R. Rotem and got some, some cash in, in my pocket and was able to kind of really start focusing on on the production and songwriting side, you know? So going from being an artist into 100% behind the scenes. And I so much prefer it that way. Is it kind of one of those things where you didn't even know that the position existed, but yep. then as soon as you got started, it's like, oh yeah, this is it. It's just such a cool thing because you're able to impart your thoughts and your stamp on something, but still be completely transparent in it. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, it's just, it's the most incredible experience and the most intimate experience just walking to a room with a stranger and leaving with somebody that you feel more intimate and uh, passionate about than a lover. You know, it's like, it's it's the craziest thing, you know, and it, it really is, it's this very emotional connection that you you have with these artists when you get into a room and you start digging into every little piece of the songwriting every little piece of the production like sonically like all the atmospheric textual stuff you know it's like it really 
really is like being inside of them and them inside of you. It's this, it's this really, it's a mind fuck. It's awesome. So <laughs> on that topic, like when you're meeting an artist for the first time that you're going to write with, how do you break the ice? Because yeah, it it is, writing is a very personal thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really, really is. I mean, I realize that sometimes producers will like, change things in the studio and it's there's a like a very uh technical side to writing mm-hmm. but really when it comes down to it the the spark for a song if you're doing it right comes from a from a real place and uh well how do you break that ice with a stranger I haven't been in any I was trying to approach this from a, a way of how not to approach it but I I haven't actually ever been in in a, in a session where it was just like, oh my God, I'm like, I basically want to gnaw my arm off to get out of here. That's never happened? No, I, I haven't wow, had I haven't, I haven't had that, that experience yet, touch wood. I think just being your authentic self. I think coming from a background of, of playing in a band, I definitely am a girl that's one of the boys. You know, so it's, I have a great rapport with with men. Like guys just see me as their best bud. You know, it's like, there's not this weird like, oh, it's a girl in a room, oh, it's a guy in a room. Like there's this weird sexual tension. It's just kind of, it works really well. I, and I, I, I think that comes from being in a band and kind of living on the road and having that little extra bit of, substance or thickness, whatever it is. I think it's really important to to allow the artist to to speak. Um, a lot of the time I've been in, in sessions where I'm the producer and I watch how other songwriters work and I love working with other songwriters because I find that it's a lot for me to be engineering, producing and writing a session. It's just, it really is kind of three different parts, like pulling away from each other. So I love to work with other songwriters and I can see the moment that artists start getting uncomfortable, kind of people just seeming really forced. You know, it's about being super relaxed. I, I'm going to key in on something that you just said, that you notice when it is that artists start to get uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And I've always said that to be able to do this job, you need to have a really high emotional intelligence. You need to be able to read people maybe better than they can read themselves. Yep. Because there's certain thing, there's cues that people give off. I've just noticed that like I can tell when someone's about to get uncomfortable. I can tell when before it even happens, before I think they even know in some cases, like I've been able to know like, all right, let's not head this way. That's that's going to make them uncomfortable. Or, or I have seen other people do it where it's like, oh man, like stop, stop what you're doing yeah. right now. Yeah. Like you can just, I don't know, like you can just like feel it on somebody it's hard to describe, but it's a real thing. Yeah, what you just said, like reading the room, 
is so important. I really do think that is a skill set that is probably one of your most valuable assets as a producer and songwriter. Like sometimes you have to choose when to pull out, you know, which gun. Like sometimes I'll go into a room and I'll and, and I'll see that okay, cool. I basically need to have like a full produced out song and top line ready. Like this this session is just not going anywhere unless kind of I pull out the big guns. Other times you arrive with an idea and the, the artist will just lose their mind, just like, I can't even believe you're forcing this on me. It's really about reading the room, reading the artist. I love that you said emotional intelligence because that's one of my favorite joint word meanings, you know, just being able to to really, really read people, to understand, to look at their body language, their eyes, their, you know, especially as artists. Artists are complex beings. So being able to sit in a room and be alongside that is really amazing. I completely agree. And um, I do think of the whole emotional intelligence thing very much like a different type of intelligence because like really you're getting signals from people like mm -hmm. you're getting their body language you're getting fluctuations in the tone of their voice and the pitch the tempo that they're talking at like everything all mm -hmm. these signals that they're giving you which if you had to take the time to analyze each one individually you might not be able to react fast enough to prevent someone from going down a bad path or getting uncomfortable or whatever, but uh, if you can just somehow interpret all of them fast and uh, set the vibe properly, not in reaction, but in accordance with the vibe that, mm -hmm. that you're getting, that's how you win, I think. And that concludes our advice from yeah. Dr. Love. Cool. Talk to you next week. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're, you're so right. It really is. Everything that you said is just, just spot on. So you're getting into these sessions with her. She's teaching you all these incredible things. Uh, you're suddenly in the room with like major producers and major artists. At first, was it kind of like, just don't say anything, just observe? Like at what point did you start to put forth your own ideas or was it right away? I mean... I think I was a little bit of a cocky shit in like when I when I first started with this, you know, so I learned fast just that I didn't leave a good taste in people's mouths in the beginning, just kind of like jumping in and being like, oh, came on too strong. Yeah, totally came on way too strong, you know, and, and that that's all comes back to emotional intelligence. But just kind of sitting back and just watching Jen, how she she handled the room. And, you know, it really is just about learning. And I think some Sometimes just shutting up and listening is is the best person that you can be in the room. You know, obviously now when I'm taking sessions by myself, you know, it's a whole, obviously I need to be speaking, but I think when you are in the room with people that have more to offer than you do, I think the most valuable you can be is just to kind of keep quiet and listen and absorb what is going on in that room. And, you know, that's exactly how I got through to where I am now is just by listening, absorbing, just watching over the shoulder. Like, why is Alex the Kid doing that? Oh, cool. That's a cool... I wonder why he's putting that on the kick drum. You know, asking the engineer, like, little simple questions. 
just kind of being interested when the time is right, obviously, to ask questions. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multitracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuga, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about, and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. Can we talk about rubbing people the wrong way? Because I think that's interesting that you said that. And I think it's interesting that you noticed that that's that emotional intelligence I was talking about. A lot of people in this field lack self-awareness. And I think that you need to be self-aware because you have to understand the effect you're having on other people. And you need to try to judge your own level somewhat accurately. I know Mm -hmm. you can never totally understand your own level it's it's impossible i think cuz it's it's too close but you need to have you need to be able to kind of know what level you're playing at you need to be able to know if something you're doing is total shit or mm-hmm. awesome but you really most importantly need to be able to know what effect you're having on people right and so i've noticed so many people just do not get it and I know I've met a lot of people who have really fucked up by being too positive, coming on too strong, just like tiring people the fuck out. Like just yep. it's too much. Yep. But and but then there's some people who are intense, uh, but they have figured out how to how to make it work. Like you're an intense person for sure. But <laughs> you definitely have not weirded me out at all. And uh you figured out how to make it just wait, yeah. <laughs> Today's still young. But uh, no, but like you figured out how to make it work for you. And I want to hear a little bit more about that. I think it's it's really important. Like when you take on the role as producer, songwriter, engineer, 
that you step out of your artist role. There cannot be two artists in the room. And I think that that is the number one thing that I see makes artists really uncomfortable is when they are not the center of attention. It's their session. Like the songwriter is trying to be so much more extra than the artist, you know, and it really, it it irks people. And as it should. (laughs) Yeah. It's their session. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that if you come from a place of being an artist, which definitely helps you be a producer, engineer, songwriter, but you need to be able to take that hat off and step back and let this other person, even though you probably are 99.9% steering that ship and you are making all the magic happen, it's important for the artist to feel like they are making the magic happen. You know, I think a lot of artists that I'm in the room with, it's really uncomfortable to be thrown in with a stranger, you know. So your job is to make them feel as comfortable and seem as great as possible. Um, and that's going to that's gonna help you just really curate this incredible session and, and emotional bond with this artist. So stepping, stepping out of the artist role, important, important. But how did you realize, like, how did you realize that, well, People are reacting to me in a way that I don't want. I need to change that. I mean, I can't really put my finger on like the exact emotion or or however I felt. It was just, you know, when people are into you and people are just not into you. And sometimes just stepping back a little bit, like for sure, I I have a, a very big personality. So my job is to figure out when that personality needs to be there when I need to like back her up a little bit, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. And I think, and you can absolutely feel, you know, people are either going to be into you when they're seeking your approval, when they're seeking your attention, or they're just like, oh my fuck, can this girl get out the room already? You know, so to be honest, I haven't actually had that experience, but but there's (laughs) there's definitely times, you know, where you can feel that your opinions are more appreciated than others. And you're paying attention to that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, when we were working on one of the Grey Days songs with with Head and Jason from Breaking Benjamin, you know, I was just like in the room, shut up. You know, I'm just like, whatever you guys want to do, you know. And 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 Head was like, but what do you think, SJ? You know, just like I'm just sitting there silent because I'm just like, holy shit, I'm producing a song and Head's playing on it. You know, so it's so insane. And, and he's just was was coming to me just going, like, hey, what do you think of this? And I'm just like, fuck, I don't know. It's You're from corn. Just whatever you want to do, put it on it. It's going to be great. So it's, it's just knowing when to pick and choose your, your battles of when your opinion is wanted and, and when it's not, especially with, with somebody that's such a vet in the industry. Even working with Matt Sorum, who's the drummer from Guns N' Roses and Velvet Revolver, and it's so great to just sit back and let him put a stamp on and then like, hey, what do you think of that? Like, great, try this, you know, if they ask for your opinion, you know. At the, at the end of the day, when you're working with, with artists that are just so much more than you are, I think, again, it's, it's important to sit back, absorb, wait for the right moment, let them come to you rather than you forcing your uh, new ideas onto them. Just the fact that they're in the room with you already says a lot. It says that they're open to you. The mission from that point then becomes, 
not to not to fuck that up and to not to overdo it. I totally agree because there's no there's no reason to. And I, I something that a friend of mine said that the best producers know when to get the fuck out of the way. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. That's such an incredibly important part of your profession. You know, exactly being transparent. I believe that that is a producer's most important job. Like not putting your stamp all over, you know, obviously people sound like when you, you hear something like played by somebody or mixed by somebody or produced by somebody, you're like, oh yeah, I can, I can hear that to them. People have a certain sound, but it's important that you allow when you're working with a band that you really allow the band's sonic value and their sound and their, them to stamp it on themselves and you just to kind of be the vessel. I'm going to totally take like a little U-turn where I really think that it's, it's so cool that I've been given the opportunity kind of as a woman in this industry kind of being involved in in the metal and rock scene and and having some of the biggest guys in the game enjoying what I'm bringing from a technical point of view, from a production point of view, from an emotional point of view to the record, you know, because there's definitely there's there's a difference, you know, when you when it's a sausage fest in a room as to like you 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 add one girl, it's going to change the entire dynamic of of the room, you know, and absolutely, and, and there is something cool about that, you know, just that little sprinkle of of something, and and I think I, I would love to see see more girls up in this. You know, and it it is a super daunting thing to be in a room of guys that are in the metal scene. You know, it's a it's a definite vibe, and just being able to kind of float and navigate that room without making it weird, without causing like any drama in the room, just being a human in the room making music together is it's a really cool thing, and it's great to see. I mean, right now I feel like I don't know too many. Other girls in the rock and music scene, um, and I would love to see more of them. Where are you hiding? Come on out. Yeah, if that's you, I'm talking to the listeners right now, and you're hiding, and you're working on awesome rock and metal stuff, hit me up. I'd love to have you on the podcast. You don't need to hide. I do think they're out there. What I've noticed is just through the URM community, a lot of them are afraid to get too too much attention on them because of the negative experiences that they've had, which are real. And uh, I completely understand. I get it. And thank you for making this a safe platform because because I really do feel like my opinion counts, and I it's not because like I have a vagina, you know, it's like, it's just, oh, cool. It's just another person. I feel like this is a really safe platform. I don't feel uh, like there's any sexist weirdness or I don't feel bullied. So thank you for for creating the space. Happy to do it. See, I think we talked about this on the phone, but for me, I didn't have to really do any mental gymnastics to create it. I grew up in a world where, uh, women were just as badass as the men, just in the orchestral world. There's so many phenomenal female musicians and females in power positions um, that it just, that's what I grew up around. That's what I know. And so actually the metal world that this guy dominated is different. 
I'm used to the metal world because I've been in it for a while, but uh, that's not what was normal to me. Um, and this makes more sense to me. I didn't really have to develop any sort of new understandings of of things in order to make it the way it is. And so I think that's probably why it actually is uh, a chill platform in that regard. I wish that more people would just chill the fuck out and uh, treat the ladies in music like coworkers. You know, you know, I don't need people to be like, oh, well, let's give her a shot because it's a girl. If I can say this without sounding like a complete dick, it's like I am great at what I do. To be honest, like I rock guitar harder than most dudes I know. Like I'm way faster and more efficient as an engineer and producer than most dudes I know, you know. And so it's got nothing to do with, oh, well, we should give girls a chance. Like if you are a badass and proficient and a pro at what you you do, it's got absolutely nothing to do with you being a man or a woman, you know, just be great at what you do and then come in owning it. Like, don't be cocky and just like, you know, make everyone feel weird about it. But it's just like sitting down and just freaking dominating and people just going like, oh, holy shit. Hey, what about this riff? And the guys just go, oh, fuck. Okay, cool. Let's try it. You know, so it's it's just knowing your, knowing your audience, knowing, you know, if metal is your thing, make sure you got your chops down. That's the vibe. I will say this. I do think that at the end of the day, in music, all bullshit aside, people do bow down to superior skill. So right. like whenever, like when someone comes in and dominates, doesn't matter who they are, that person tends to win. Totally. So I agree with you. If, if you want to get far in this world, the more of a badass you are, the easier it's going to be. I do think that if nobody feels like they're making any special considerations, that definitely will work in your favor the most. If Someone's just working with you because they think you're great. You know, one of my pet peeves are is, is and, and I saw you post something on it the other day and I had such a great giggle because nine times out of, out of 10, I'm working in like these massive studios that cost like $1,800 or something for X amount of hours. And, and you said like, it takes two hours to figure out how to make the aux cable work. Oh, Phineas said it, that. Oh, was yeah. it Phineas that said that? Man, it was, you, you posted it and I just like died because it is, you know, there's nothing worse than walking into a session and nobody can get shit started. You know, it's like you walk into your bedroom just with your, like whatever you using your your little interface, your little baby Genelix or whatever you got going on, boom, boom, you end, let's go, let's start rocking, you know? And it's like, oh, whoa, we got to just make sure that this mic pre is, oh, oh, and this is, you know, and I'm just like, oh my God, like you're killing creative time now, man. That's just uh, pet pet peeve, like be efficient, be streamlined, walk into, walk into a session with like your, if you work on a template, have your template done. Nine times out of 10, I don't work on a template just because I'm crazy like that and I like to be spontaneous and, and you know, to have things change. I feel like if I'm working on a template, my chains are always the same and I like to mm-hmm. to, to test myself and I, I feel it's, it's kind of cool to switch things up. If you're nervous, go in with the template. You know, when I did the Breaking Benjamin uh, corn session for the Grey Days stuff, I, you know, 
went in with a template because I was shitting myself. So <laughs> figure out what's good for you and be efficient. Be like, have everything dialed in, ready to go. It's like, there's nothing worse than, a, it's, a, it's a mood killer, vibe killer. You know, it's like, I, I can't get anything working. Uh, everyone's feeling weirded out. Like, you know, so the reason I reposted that was because I've had that experience in big studios. Like I've had that experience where, you're paying all this money and half the channels on the board don't work and they don't know which channels work and which don't. And it's a fucking disaster and they're charging you anyways. I I remember this one, I was assistant engineering on a job for a cowboy EP. We went to this really nice studio with like an SSL and the SSL just wasn't working that first day they couldn't figure out how to fix it like had to get like some expert guy to show up the next day and rewire a bunch of shit like it was fucked up they charged us anyways for that day we lost an entire day due to their ssl not working and uh (laughs) we still got charged and i've been in that scenario so many times i really do think the thing that blows me away is when someone is on top of their shit and somehow just has it all together to where work gets done easily and it doesn't feel cumbersome. You know how there's certain projects where, or certain people, it just feels like everything is just so fucking painstaking. It just painful to just get a riff done. And mm-hmm. then with other people, it's just, it's light. There's no effort. It just works. That to me, when I'm around people like that, regardless of what uh, what capacity, those are the kinds of people I want to work with more often. Like I remember that. I note that always, always have. Like, it's one of the most impressive things. I feel like we'd make some good music together. Probably. Quick and good. <laughs> I'd have to get good at making music again, though. It's been a while. You're completely out of the game. Here's the thing. I'm not good at doing multiple things because... I get super obsessive with like the thing I'm doing. I just, I go all in and have like no hobbies and like it's the only fucking thing I do. I've always <laughs> been that way. I'm an extremist and it's caused me problems in my life, but it also has brought me success. Like mm-hmm. my mom used to tell me when I was a little kid that I'm an extremist and I should chill out a little bit, but it's just the way I'm wired. So when I decided that I was doing URM, in order for me to be able to really do it, not just to have the time to do it as far as scheduling goes, but like mentally in my head, the only way that I could actually do it would be to quit everything else. Because production, you know, when I'm working on a record or my own records or pursuing some sort of a musical ambition, then that becomes the only thing I think about. When I'm working on a record, like that is my entire life. I'm not good at like working on a record and then uh, going and doing something else and then coming back to the record. Like my brain doesn't work very well that way. I have to do the thing I'm doing. So yeah, so when I started URM, in order to make it what it is now and what it will still become in the future, I had to, I had to stop doing everything else. So yeah, I'm out of the game. And your room looks sick, by the way. I just uh, I just checked checked out that picture. I'm highly jealous. 
when I, I need to need to figure out something with my little my little cave here at my house. I'm not out of the game creatively, you know. Like, I'm no, still totally. Totally. Yeah, like that's that's the thing is uh, my creativity is still in full swing. The only thing is I, I just don't really use it for making music anymore. That doesn't mean it won't happen again. I just, like I said, I I get obsessed with shit. It's a blessing and a curse. But yeah, this room's coming along. So one thing that I think will be interesting for listeners to know is that this entire time I've been doing URM and this podcast, I haven't had my own podcast studio or office or anything. Like all of URM has happened from bedrooms, living rooms, kitchens, and uh, other people's studios. Like when we go do Nail the Mix. This entire time I haven't had my own spot. And so right now I just got into a position to have my own spot my own studio, and I'm going all out, making it awesome. I feel like I've earned it. I didn't feel right uh, asking the company to like build me a room at the beginning, which is kind of weird, but I just didn't feel right. But uh, at this point, it's kind of like uh, I'm okay with it. Yeah, it's but pre- yeah. freaking badass. You, you deserve that room. It's awesome. I wish I had done it earlier, but... And and going back to our, our Phineas conversation, it's like some of the greatest records that I'm hearing are coming out of people's bedrooms. It really is, you know, like sure, it's it's hard to to track drums and in a bedroom. Yeah, it's there's some challenges there. People are making it work. And we just we just did um the new Alien and Farm EP. We literally did everything in the box. You know, which is which is not ideal and a lot of people would would criticize it, but I think it sounds pretty fucking massive. And I brought my my partner over from France, Lucas D'Angelo, he's the guitar player in Betraying the Martyrs. And him and I have been working together for the past two years or so and, and so I bring him in for a couple of projects whenever I, I just need to be focused on on production and then he can just take over all the engineering and so we literally did that that record on like a zero budget you know and just just with a lot of love in the drummer's house so I'm excited excited for everyone to hear it I think it sounds badass regardless of not having budget or or anything it's like you do not need fancy gear anymore. You need great ears and great instinct to make a great record. Absolutely. And that's you saying it, having worked in tons of great rooms. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, listen, do I love working at NRG? Dude, that studio is is off the hook. The engineer that worked on us, uh, worked with us on the Grey Days record, Kyle Hoffman, he's probably one of the most insane engineers I've ever worked with. Like super efficient, super fast, just brilliant at what he what he does you know but that's not every day do we have these opportunities to be working with these incredible people if I had to put together a team that I worked with you know every day that I just had in my pocket you know that would be awesome but that's not reality you know and in order to to keep flowing and to keep creating and and doing great things what you have right in front of you on your laptop is good enough with great instincts and great ears, because it really is. You know, I was watching the Kane Choco in the mix, I think, on the, one of the Papa Roach stuff, you know, and he's just like, oh, I don't know exactly what this does, but it sounds great. 
you know, and I'm like, that's my boy, you know, that's kind of like my instinct to things. It's like, you know, I'll go with some stuff that I realize that boosting this does this. and But sometimes it's just, you throw something on and you're like, I don't know exactly what it does, but it sounds fucking phenomenal. And you just got to go with those, those instinctual gut feelings where you're like, that just changes my entire per- perception of the song. And again, that's just your opinion and somebody else is going to hate it. And it really doesn't matter. If you think it's great and the artist thinks it's great, go with go with that. Do you consider yourself more of a technical engineer or more of a feel-based engineer? I'm definitely a feel-based engineer. I'm feel with almost everything that I do. I would rather there be mistakes all over a record, you know, and then we figure out how to how to do it because the feel was there and it was so great. I generally don't compress an EQ too much on anything going in just because I feel like if I have more control over it in, in post, that's just the way I like to work. I know it's not mm-hmm. ideal, but you know, sometimes sometimes when I'm writing the song, engineering the song, producing the song, sometimes I make mistakes. I'm doing so much that I've, you know, I've overlooked something. And it's it's just easier for me working by myself to do everything afterwards. So, I mean, would I call myself an engineer? Like, would I feel comfortable going into NRG and running that rig? Absolutely not. You know, I would need probably a good week just to familiarize myself with everything, uh, understand the, the, the signal flow. And, you know, I think when you're working in the box so often, we get, we get so lucky with, with how easy everything is to set up that when it actually comes to the, the big big guys that are uh, like patching everything in, you know, as, as simple as it is, there's a lot that goes goes into the thought and and you can definitely, definitely hear the difference. You know, I, I just, I don't have the luxury to be able to to do that when, when ha- wearing three hats at the same time and trying to be efficient and like not losing the magic. And, you know, it's just kind of, let's get something up and going and, and make sure nothing's peaking. We're good to go, add a little subtle compression and let's, let's rock. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't, I really don't think there's anything wrong with uh, doing stuff co- totally in the box. I mean, so many awesome people do that now. And we've had several comparison sessions now. I don't know if you saw the Carnival Nail the Mix. We went to Australia for that with Forrester Savelle, and he did the whole mix on an SSL. Wow. But he finished early, and um, we were in this really, really sick studio in Brisbane, and um, we were like, why don't we see if we can uh, substitute some of these pieces of gear with the plug-in versions and get it to sound identical. So we spent about two hours. It's wow. like the last two hours of that Nail the Mix just dialing the like the 1176s against the UADs. Wow. And what we found was that you can't match the settings and expect them to sound the same. Mm-hmm. So if you forget about that part, but just use your ear to try to match them, you can get them sounding identical. It really doesn't matter. So I think there's no reason for anybody to feel like they're limited in any way, shape, or form because they don't have NRG. So... How did you transition from working under somebody in pop to uh, 
little by little moving up the rock ladder? I mean, I come from a metal and rock background, you know, so my favorite bands growing up were, I mean, I was listening to like Christian death metal, like Mortification. <laughs> have, have you ever? <laughs> Mortification, yeah. wow. Do you remember that, that band? Yes. <laughs> I mean, that's what I was growing up on, you know, because I wasn't allowed to listen to anything secular. So, and secular is considered like non-Christian music, you know, so it was kind of, I was seeking out the heaviest stuff that I could find like in the Christian bookstore. So like finding mortification and and then pillar, kind of bands like that, Skillet, who, you know, all of those guys are, were just kind of who I grew up on. And then obviously- I, I, I didn't think mortification and Skillet in the same sentence as ha, kind of have you funny. heard have you heard the first skillet record? It's nope. the one with the frying pan on the front. Like I think it's their best record ever. It's definitely more kind of like I mean it, it's it's Nirvana-y rock, you know. I mean they've mm-hmm. definitely changed their sound. I don't I'm not a fan of of the sound now, but um, I love that record, you know. So it was kind of rock and and metal was. I was so desperate to get my hands on on anything that wouldn't send me to hell, you know. So, so that's where I started, and then I kind of left the the church when I was around twenty one, and and I really was a late bloomer. Like I didn't even know who the Smashing Pumpkins were until I was like nineteen years old. You oh, know? so so you were like really really in it. Oh, dude, it was so crazy. I brought home the Incubus album one day, and my mum took it outside and burnt it. Oh, just because of the band name? Yeah, because it's like the the male rape god or something. I don't know, whatever it is. Like it was just, I, it was. I was not allowed to listen to to anything, you know. So I really, I, I had a lot to catch up on. And although, you know, it was that's where I got all my my grounding was in the church because ch- churches seem to pump so much money into audio. They sure do. <laughs> yeah, and it's and that that's where I learned everything. You know, was was from. Uh, this guy who who owned a studio that I did an internship at called Northwind Recording in in Hillcrest, Durban, in South Africa, and, and he did all the live sound, and it was just it was always it was like the the best rock concert you ever went to every Sunday, you know. It was just so so. I really do attribute that, even though there were lots of lots and lots of cons, you know, that really got got me started in sound. And obviously, you know, Stealing Love Jones, the band I played in in South Africa was kind of a super soft rock, kind of Avril Lavigne sounding kind of thing. But it was, there was a niche for that at that time. And, and I guess that's just why it exploded and did so well, you know, didn't do well in the States. And so I fell into the pop music industry because it was where the money was that I thought. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that that was kind of it. And and now that I feel that my soul has been completely destroyed by the pop music industry, which it just has, man. I, I just I really don't like it. I don't I don't enjoy I mean, sure, there's songs that I love. I just don't like the process. I don't like, it's just not for for me. I've kind of not outgrown it. I just, I love being a part of. I mean, if it's not, if it's not for you, it's not for you. Yeah, totally. And I've learned so much from it and I'm so grateful, but it's like, you know, I grew up playing in bands with boys, you know, from, I had my first band when I was 12 years old playing like 
like a battle of the bands. You know, I look back at that stuff and I cringe. But but that that's what I love to do. I love the the community of it. I love sitting in in a garage and and drinking a cheap beer and writing a song. You know, there's there's something about that breaking of bread, which is just so rad. Which I don't feel you get in the pop music industry. Everyone's just so fucking fabulous and it's great. But I'm not that girl, you know? It's like I'm wearing the same oversized black T-shirt with the same black pants and the same black shoes, and that's me every single day, you know? So it's just you, you find your tribe and, and you stick with it. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. But how did you re-enter your tribe? I mean, now maybe they're starting to be a little more crossover, but it's they're kind of two separate worlds completely. I think finding my new management team was key. And Renee uh, Mata at AAM, he's a rock dude, you know, so he's he's kind of opened up the doors to all his connections, and and that that was was kind of what I was seeking out. It was just I don't really want to do this whole top lining production thing. I want to be in a room with a band and 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 get back to to making music the way I loved it and the management company heard me and I think making the right choices of your management when you get to that point too, you know, somebody that really is going to hear you and put you in the room with with artists and bands that you really want to be in the room with. That's interesting that you say that because um, very few producer managers that I'm aware of actually do that. Most of the ones that I know are basically just the producer's pit bull um, right. <laughs> that uh, you know negotiates with contracts and does the the dirty work. But most of the ones I know and good ones too, they don't do that part, like putting the artist in the room with the producer type end of things, which I think would be awesome. It's just rare. That's super rare. I mean, in my experience, that's your manager's only job, you know, is to be putting you in the room with You would think, right? Right. I mean, obviously, yes, negotiating deals and, and handling all the stuff to allow you to be creative, but really important that they they hear you and that they have the relationships to to open up these doors for you too, you know? And and again, like I'm a super relationship-based person, uh, super feely, super emo, like that's just just the, the human that I am, you know? So it's really important to me that, that I'm involved in a business capacity with people that are on my same emotional level. I just, I don't speak business, even though I have a great business mind, I know what I want, I'm, I'm you know, I have finances sorted out, I have like, you know, everything's compartmentalized, but it's, I don't want to be speaking business talk with people that I'm in, in a relationship with, like hear me, understand me, this is, this is who I am, open those doors for me. Interesting that you say that because you are good at business. Thank you. Yeah, I, I mean, for sure, you have to. You have to be. You have to be both. I really do think that gone are the days of just being an artist and being able to be like a total fuck up and having somebody look after you. Yeah, that that doesn't work. <laughs> no, and it doesn't exist anymore. You know, it's like everybody is so. Uh, I know we we spoke earlier of saying that maybe the work ethic is different, but I feel. I feel like it's a different way, like social media and just kids out there hustling their freaking Instagram and Snapchats and whatever else it is. You know, like it's a hassle now and you need to be on um, 24-7. And 
you know, this is again talking about your brand and your business and exactly what you put out there. I mean, sure, do I look like I'm having having fun and that I'm ridiculous nine times out of ten? Absolutely. It's just my my personality. I'm a big dork. But also have my shit together behind the scenes. It's really important. I want to talk about that a little bit because I think it's interesting that you said that you don't want to talk business with people that you're involved with, but you're also, on the other hand, you have your shit together with business and you even have side hustles going and multiple income streams. I mean, you're doing you're doing it right. You're doing it exactly right. It's just, it's interesting to me. What I'm wondering is where do you, what's the line for you? I think maybe it's more the vocabulary of how I want to be communicated with and maybe that came across wrong Um, And how I said that earlier, it's just I don't want people... Tone for me is everything. And if, you mm-hmm. know, I, how I like people that I'm, I'm in a partnership with or in business with to talk to me is in a kind and loving way. Even if there's something not good, that's the way I need you to talk to me because I don't handle you being business with me and I will literally shut down and we're done. You know, so, so I think it's really important to, which is, which is a, 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 not a good thing for me. You know, it's, I should be able to to handle that, but I don't. But you know that about yeah, yourself. You, you so. raise a, a tone at me and this conversation is done. Trust me. It's mm-hmm. like I, I, I'm emotionally shut down. I'll probably be crying in the other room. Like I'm just a big baby, you know. So it's just, it's just having people in your life that are, I mean, I probably have, People I can count on five hands, five hands, five hands. People I can count on one hand. (laughs) It's a lot of hands that that are are close to me and that I trust, you know. And and I think in in creating your your brand and, and looking after yourself emotionally, mentally, all those things, because every day as a producer, songwriter, engineer, you're basically just giving yourself away, especially as as on the songwriting side of stuff. You know, it's just. You, you are just giving, giving, giving. So just being able to find that that place and people that are again your your same tribe. I just find I find people in rock and metal just so much more loving for some reason. It's just like, like it's this hard outer thing, and like maybe they we look a little scarier to the world, but there's so much more nurturing. There's so much more kindness. It's just people are real. You know, I find the 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 men are are nicer to women. I, I don't know. It's just like it's a maybe it's just my perception, but it's my perception. <laughs> I'm curious on you know you're talking about giving and giving and giving with writing. You got me thinking that one of the things that's the hardest to work out in a co-writing situation. This is where where, where shit gets weird. Is like who's getting what? What the splits are? Getting that figured out without ruining the vibe to where you're still making art and that's not even an issue. Is that where your manager comes in or how do you how do you walk that line and still keep that vibe exactly like you said? I walk into a room with the understanding that I probably will be writing 99.9% of the song, but I'm going to leave with 50% of it. Like if it's just me or you and you. It's it's split by how it, however many writers on the room. Like for example, if it's me and a band, it's going to be a fifty fifty split. 
if it's me and two songwriters, it's going to be a 33 and a third split. I just, I don't believe in in nickeling and diming people. I feel like it's bad for the creative process. I think mm-hmm. that that walking into a room, you understand that that however many people are in this room, we are splitting it that way. I mean, obviously, if there's like seven band members, that makes no sense. You know, it has to, if it's a band situation, it's they're considered one entity. If you're bringing in a a songwriter or like if a band already has a song done um, and they just, you know, bringing in for like some melody changes, you know, I believe being fair and what my time is like, sure, like I'll take 10% just for a little melody change, you know. I don't want anybody to think that I'm taking advantage and I don't want to feel taken advantage of either, you know, especially when I'm doing all the heavy lifting. I think we actually had a chatted about this on, on the phone the other day that I, the one thing that really, really bugs me about what's happened with the kind of the business model of of the music industry of where it is now is that us as songwriters and producers, we basically work for free every day. You know, it's the label puts this, their, their artist in the room with you, which sure, it's percentage based, but you're not getting a cent unless that song goes on the record or it's a single, you know. So if I'm in two sessions a day, let's just say doing like, let's just say 500 songs a year, maybe one of those songs gets picked up and and it's really frustrating because it's like yes do i do i want to be in the room with this person absolutely like the opportunity is awesome i want to have this relationship with the label but it's you're basically a professional gambler you know just having having these people in the room it may do something it may not do something you know so i think i think understanding at that point like yes i deserve X amount. If, for example, it's been a session where it just, it's 100% where I'm doing all the heavy lifting. And actually, I don't know, because I feel like you would never have written that song if that person wasn't in the room. So, so democratic splits always. Just so much easier. <laughs> you know, it's interesting what you just said about it. You're basically a gambler. You're right. I've never thought about it in those words, but that's a great way to put it. And that also justifies the percentage because if you're not getting paid to be there, unless, you know, if you're not getting paid to be there and the only way you're getting paid is if the song gets somewhere, then there's only one fair way to mm-hmm. to do that. Yeah, absolutely. You're gambling together, Yeah, basically. You're basically putting your own money into somebody else's career, which which kind of like I had this whole mental breakdown uh, at the end of last year because I'm just like, what am I doing? You know, it's like I'm spending all this time with artists that, to be honest, I don't really believe in, you know, um, kind of climbing up the ladder to get to the artists that, that you want to get to. And you basically just investing in other people's careers. And I was trying to think of how could we flip that around? Like we should be investing in ourselves, but at the same time getting these, I I don't know. It was just, I I had a complete meltdown at the end of last year, just like this has to change, you know? What conclusion did you come to? Well, the conclusion that I came to was that I'm, I guess I'm at a, a point in my career where I can, I can do this, you know? So now I'm just choosing which artists that I, I want to work with. I get approached by my management daily, several times a day saying, this artist, this artist, this artist, I'll check them out. 
if I like them, I'll say, cool, let's do, let's go for it. Otherwise, you know, at the beginning of your career, yes, you take every single job that you can, you know, every single artist, because this is building your repertoire. It's building your songwriting. I don't know. I guess, I guess now it's just being a little bit more picky and, and selective and just really n- investing your time into people that you believe in. Did you have to kind of train yourself to say no? Absolutely. I think, you know, when you're doing so many sessions a day and you kind of, you feel like, oh, well, I, I need to be writing this song. Otherwise I'm worthless. Like nobody's going to, like, how the, how's the label going to find out about me? Like that person, that artist could be the one. You know, and it's really hard. You just get into this kerfuffle of life because it's just you end up neglecting yourself, you end up neglecting your relationships, you know. So finding that balance is is really, really important. So now just setting those boundaries um, in my life, to be honest, has made me more productive. It's given me more clarity. It's, you know, the artist that I really want to work with, you know, I'm putting it on to the universe and my management's making that happen. So, so it, it's working, I guess. <laughs> working with an artist from the frame of, I have to take this because what if it's the one, seems like a really negative spot to choose to work with an artist from as opposed to the I'm stoked to be working with this person because I love their work let's do something awesome together that's a whole that's that's a long way away from I have to say yes yep. even though I might not really want to yep. I have to say yes because what if it's the game changer I mean the thing is there's so many people kind of on Instagram and and inspirational music, you know, whatever they call themselves that I just see that they that they keep saying take every session, take every session, which is why we've taken every session because if you don't do it, somebody else is going to do it and you know Well, you know, I th- okay, so like you just said, at the very beginning, you have to you have to for so many for all the reasons you said, beggars can't be choosers. And the only way you're going to get good is by doing it all the time. So probably if you're at the beginning of your career, you probably suck or kind of suck or just not that good yet. Um, Probably more than likely you have to get past that stage. So forget relationships and uh, connections and all that. Like first and foremost, you need to like get good. And the only way you're going to get good is by working a lot. And so that's why I tell people at the beginning to say yes is just because they need to stop sucking. And the only way they're going to stop sucking is by working, like doing as much as they can, as often as they can. But there comes a point where they need to put the brakes on. Just saying yes to everything is like, I think is just as um, unproductive as not saying yes to anything because by not, deciding intelligently who you're spending your time with, you could be wasting a lot of time with a lot of people that are going nowhere. Yeah, I agree. And and burnout is a real thing in this industry. I mean, maybe in every industry, but I mean, that was me at the end of last year. Like I was just burnt 
out, you know, going into these sessions just in my head, just fucking miserable. Just and then you you're not giving the artist what they they deserve, whether they deserve it or not. You know, it's like you're not got you don't have your best foot forward, which doesn't look good for you. You know, and and once again, you are your own brand, your own best PR person. It's like your your personality and your relationship is is the reason why people come back to you. Obviously, yes, getting your chops up so important, and but just taking care of yourself too. If you have nothing creative to give, you are no good to anybody nor yourself. So I agree with you about online gurus, by the way. I kind of hate them. And I think that people should take everything, me included, everything that like online or any sort of like thought authority says with a grain of salt because it really disturbs me how the worship that happens for what some people say online, uh, whether it's like a producer that they love or like it happens to me too, like where someone will take things I say like way too seriously and way too literally and way too like exact. And I'm only, I'm speaking from my perspective always that might not be applicable for somebody else's life. And I have f- fucked up a lot in my life. So I, I'm def- I definitely have made my share of mistakes and I shouldn't be listened to like a deity, in my opinion. Um, and it fucking disturbs me. It disturbs me. Like it makes me really uncomfortable when people do that uh, because I don't think that it helps them at all. Like I think that... Uh, the way that you should take online advice or any sort of advice is with a grain of salt and um, as it applies to your own situation. Yeah, and we're just bantering here, so don't listen to anything that we just said over this past couple of hours. <laughs> Ignore it completely. Exactly. No, but it, it, it's just, I know what you mean. Like lots of people online say, say yes to everything, so... A lot of people are just saying yes to everything because that's what they see online. I really do encourage people that anything that you're doing that somebody else advised, (laughs) stop for a second and ask yourself if that advice really makes sense for you at that point in time. Because for instance, I've seen some millionaire producers be like, never do anything for free. I never do anything for free. Like these dudes that are have like... 17 platinum records and like five Grammys and like a $10 million house. And they're like, I have, I never do anything for free. It's like, well, no shit. You don't do anything for free. Like you're like our financial situation, slightly different, buddy. Plus I bet you did do some things for free 30 years ago. Absolutely. At the beginning. That's the thing is when you hear people talking from a successful people talking you have to remember that they might not necessarily remember what it was like to struggle. They might not have an accurate memory of what they went through. Mm-hmm. And they may have forgotten some of the steps. They may just be talking about how they feel about life now. If you're not at the same level that they're at, then you might not want to take everything they say as like gospel. Yeah, and and I mean, a lot of a lot of people say to me, oh, but, you know, it's like, 
I don't have the finances to be able to learn how to to engineer or learn how to produce or, you know, you got really lucky being in the room. And I'm like, yes, I did. But everything that I've learned, to be honest, is is what I've learned online tech-wise. You know, it's YouTube, URM Academy. You can go down the rabbit hole and learn how to do absolutely everything without spending a cent. You know, and and I think that's invaluable information because there's no limit to what we can do and what we can learn. And, you know, no money has to be spent unless you want to in learning how to how to create, be a master of your craft. We put out the majority of our information for free, but the stuff that we do charge for, we try to keep pretty reasonable so that Mm -hmm. no one can say, I mean... Summit tickets are expensive, but in general, like what nail the mix is 20 bucks a month. Yeah. Like if someone can't afford that, like if they actually can't afford it, maybe they're not in a position to be worrying about recording because mm-hmm. they've got some serious financial problems that they need to deal with. And maybe now's not the time to like if $20 a month is not within range, then maybe there's other things that some other things you need to prioritize because mm-hmm. that's like no money whatsoever if you want something. But the goal was to make it to where people don't have that excuse. Like if they want to learn, there it is. It's fucking cheap as shit or free. And yep. it's not like an $80,000 commitment, like full sale or something. Yeah, no, it's 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 incredible. And, you know, I I have absolutely no musical education at all. I've never studied music, never studied engineering, never studied production, never studied songwriting. You know, I have a degree in nothing, you know, and it's just kind of, I mean, I I feel like I have a degree in life, which is, which is pretty rad, but you know, it really is testament to being a go-getter and that you don't have to have you know, any of, and unless that's something that the opportunity you afforded and you want to, um, you know, I just, I wasn't in that position and, and everything that, that I've learned has been a hundred percent online based, you know, and generally for free. And then obviously being in the room with, with, uh, producers and engineers and just kind of having a hawk eye and watching everything that's going on. I think that's great. World is changing. People are learning things differently now. I, do I think education is important? Absolutely. You know, I just, I think there's different ways of, of learning. Some people need to see things. Some people need to hear things. Some people need to be shown things. I'm definitely a visual person. So seeing stuff, watching the, the nail the mixes, you know, like that's, I don't really want to read anything. You know, I'm not a reader. It's I want to be watching. I want to see see why you're doing that. I, that's just the way that I like to learn. So figuring out what kind of person you are and how you learn. And, and I think also being a realist about you might be desperate to be an engineer or a producer and you just... You know, there is something about having that it factor. It's like you, you're born with with a, a vibe. You know, you either have great instinct, great ears. It's something you can be taught, but it's better if you you have that instinct. Yeah, that thing like charisma or talent, those things, those uh, you can't really you can't really train charisma or talent. Like it is what it is. But the thing is, those are just bonus points. Like. 
I know people that are not very talented who have done great in music through hard work. And I know lots of people with lots of talent who got nowhere because yep. they fucked around. Yep. Like, so one of the most talented, two of the most talented people I ever met were my roommates at Berkeley. They were complete fuck-ups, drug addict <laughs> fuck-ups. Oh, and man. they were so much better than me at music. I don't mean technically. I mean talent-wise. They mm -hmm. just had so much more talent than me. Technically, we were similar, but like their brains were just superior to mine. Like they were so fucking talented, but they were such fuck-ups that these guys could have definitely done whatever they wanted musically. They were so fucking good. And uh, in any genre, it didn't matter. They were that good, but... One just went back to his home in Missouri and lost his mind. The other one just disappeared. I've seen that happen way too many times where someone has talent and it still goes nowhere. It's kind of the, the artist curse, huh? It is. But the thing is, the artists I know who go places combine the two. So they have talent and they have work ethic. Has anybody ever like not wanted to work with you because you didn't go to a formal school? Nope. I didn't think so. It's never even come up. Yeah. Just like I said, just know your shit, you know? It's kind of, sure, could I play you like some crazy scale? Absolutely not, you know? But can I figure it out? Yes. Can I sight read? No. But can I figure it out? Yes. You know, so it's like when when you're getting into the room with somebody, some nine times, actually 10 times out of 10, nobody's putting a chart in front of you and going like, play this. You know, that's never happened to me ever in like 20 years of being in the industry. Um, maybe one time at church, but you know, that was, that's ridiculous and, and ages ago. I, I really do think that, that people are, are not judging you on your kind of music theory abilities. You know, nobody's having these, not in, in the rooms that I'm with nine times out of 10. Like, sure, it can be like some cool nerdy guitar talk or whatever about this scale and like, you know, which is which is rad. And but it's it's not a thing like, oh, you don't have a music degree. Oh, we can never work together. You know, it's it's not like that. It's it's all about the vibe and the vibe you're creating in the room and the intuition and again the emotional intelligence for the music and understanding the room. You know, that's that's all the stuff that counts. At the end of the day, when somebody puts that record on, most people are not like charting it out. You know, they're listening to it and they're having this human connection and and that's what making a record is about: is this human connection and and putting it onto a physical, you know, platform. So to people that are, uh, you know, looking to embark on a career in a production or songwriting, how would you suggest that they get started if they're starting from zero? I think it's important to, to start writing songs yourself. You know, I, I feel like a lot of people, strangely enough, uh, that are songwriters don't play any instruments. And I would highly, highly encourage you as a songwriter. Uh, it, it always is completely bizarre to me where somebody will walk into a room and just have like a melody sung out like into their phone. There's no chords behind it. They don't that play That weirds me out too. So weird. Have you had that experience? 
I've worked with people like that before. It makes no sense to me whatsoever. Like, I don't understand how that's writing, but it is. Yeah. But I, I just like, that's not how my brain works. Yeah. I mean, my brain doesn't work like that either. And like, sure, sometimes at like three in the morning, like I'll wake up and, and I'll have a melody in my head and I'll run to the bathroom and sing it into my phone, you know, but then the next day I'll come and I'll map it out, you know, and, and then have a, an idea to present with like maybe a whole kind of bass drums, guitar thing, or maybe even just a, a piano underneath it. You know, just to kind of make the idea like fleshed out a little bit more for people to understand. So I would highly encourage as a songwriter, if songwriting is what you want to do, like learn learn basic piano skills, like, you know, just be able to chord out like very simple like triads or, or whatever it is, just so that uh, you can articulate your idea a little bit better. And then, you know, I think there's nothing wrong with taking a song that is a hit record and putting it into your your logical pro tools and mapping out exactly like how many bars in a verse, what's happening in this pre, what's happening in the chorus, what's happening in the post, what is, is there a middle eight in this song? Like what is this melody doing? And really just deconstructing the song, you know? And I, I feel like that is how... Um, totally. Even even now when I approach, if I go into uh, a session with, with a, a metal band that maybe I'm unfamiliar with, I will start kind of studying the songs and seeing kind of how, you know, th there's absolutely a structure for every genre. You know, there's a pop structure, there's a rock structure, there's a, a metal structure. Sure, metal gets a little bit more creative. I think, I think that is such a great idea for you to use as a template, you know, just to see kind of how chords are progress progressing or how vocal melod melodies are changing, how many bars for X, Y, or Z. It's, it really is a foolproof structure, I guess. And like I said, I still do it now. I'll go to the, the top song on the chart and and kind of listen to it. And sure, I have my own opinion of, of how I would have done things better, but I, I don't have a song on the top 10 charts, you know, so they have to be doing something right. I totally agree with what you're saying. Analyzing music, I think I must have analyzed over 200 songs like before I turned 20. Just well, like in depth, like before having a DAW, just like not just songs, like orchestral music, just soundtracks, just writing down everything that's happening, mm -hmm. how it's working emotionally, how it's working thematically, how it's working harmony wise, structurally, like everything, just analyze the fuck out of it and really, really understand it. Doing that enough. I think it was one of the most people ask me about like what's some of the the most powerful stuff you've learned like that has made the most difference that's probably up there um among the top top 5 things I've done that have given me the most return on investment is the way that that for like helps your your musical mind there's nothing quite like it I agree why reinvent the wheel you know, obviously there was somebody that had to invent the wheel and I do believe in musical integrity and maybe you have this crazy idea which just takes the world by storm. But I think at that point, like there's something uh, to be said about, like if you want to break into the industry and be really good at, at 
this certain genre, you kind of have to figure out how to nail that first, you know, and then you can start throwing your little tidbits into it, which I think it's a, a foolproof idea. Plus, you can't control if the world's gonna is going to respond to your music. So to approach it from the perspective of I'm going to set the world ablaze with my music is kind of, it's kind of unrealistic. Like I get it if people have those ambitions, because I get it. I've always had huge ambitions, but you should still approach it in the most realistic way possible. And Mm so the way that helps you get them the deepest understanding possible of, uh, of the craft is the best in my opinion. Yep. I agree. So awesome. I think it's a good place to stop it. I want to thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's been awesome speaking with you. Oh man, the pleasure is all mine on our little Valentine's Day podcast dates. I yeah, loved it. Absolutely. Happy Valentine's Day. Thank you to you too. Thanks. <laughs> okay then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends as well as post them to your Facebook, Instagram, or any social media you use. Please tag me at URM Audio, And of course, please tag my guests as well. Till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.